politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow patriots, solid, independent conservatives and all around common sense Americans to the Conservative Review podcast here on this fine Thursday, August the 29th. Yes, summer is almost over. That dreaded September session of Congress is almost back in play. And there is a lot that will be going on next week. So you're going to want to tune into conservativereview.com to get all your written content. This show to get your video and audio content. Subscribe to our YouTube page as well. Our Twitter account at RMConservative and at CR for the Conservative Review Twitter account. Because we don't even know what it is to be a conservative. And that's literally what this show is, conservative review. And I just want to preface this show. We're going to have a special guest on today. Before we talk about the most grotesque form of social transformation without representation, continuing our show from two days ago about this case of a federal judge, Ninth Circuit, of course, in Idaho, forcing the state or attempting to force the state, not that they have such power, attempting to force the state to engage in what could only be described as castration operations for those requesting it in prison. There's something broader going on. I first feel there's a need to define what is conservatism? What is it we're conserving? And I would say very simply, what it is we're trying to conserve is our way of life, our sovereignty, our security, our society, and our system of government. The four S's right there. Sovereignty, security, society, system. And included in that is very simple. Most of, most of us, and I would say even a lot of people that don't consider themselves conservatives, live conservative lives in the respect that they want government to essentially leave them alone, especially nowadays with technology, the internet. The markets work well when you let them work. Let me have my job. Don't overtax and overregulate me. I'm not asking for a handout. But what I want from you is the core functions of government to keep us safe and secure at a local level, local state level, um, dealing with domestic violence and crime, at a federal level, dealing with external problems, the border, illegal immigration. We don't hate anyone. We welcome everyone. But we just don't want a fundamental transformation of neighborhoods and communities and cities with cultures that are very foreign to, our, to ours in, in large numbers. You know, just today, there is a sixth arrest in an illegal alien rape case in Montgomery County, Maryland, where the individual was doing stuff to a 12 year old. And he said, well, that's culturally a joke in El Salvador. And I hate to say it, but the guy, as creepy as he is, is not 100 percent wrong about that. You know, um, one of the things I have here in my book, Stolen Sovereignty, Theodore Sedgwick, he said as follows when they were talking about the first naturalization law. And this is about immigration, but it's really what we're going to talk about today is not immigration for once. It's more broad. It's what is America? And he said the citizens of America prefer this country because it is to be preferred. And he raised doubts about bringing in so many people from Europe out of the fear that their sensations impregnated with prejudices of education acquired under monarchical and aristocratical governments may deprive them of that zest. For what? For pure republicanism. Pure republicanism. They wanted to preserve that. 
That's what we're conserving. Our traditional values, Judeo-Christian ethos of America, not that everyone even needs to be that religious or religious at all, but the notion that we're going to fundamentally transform our values, our demographics in just an unnatural way. Again, security, sovereignty, leave our markets free, have a sane, rational foreign policy where we define and then rigorously defend our interests home and abroad and do it fully and then conserve our military for where it's not needed and don't get involved in areas where it's not needed. There's a lot more to say, but that's essentially what we're trying to conserve and what we're going to do. The most grotesque form of social transformation and often without representation being done by unelected bodies of government is this so-called transgender agenda. You know, it started off with the redefinition of marriage. Words have no meaning. Institutions have no meaning. How suddenly a court could redefine what a marriage is. And now we have an endless effort to redefine what a human being is. A man's a woman, a woman's a man. And for people who accuse us of having a war on women because we don't want taxpayer-funded abortifacients or birth control that's funded by the taxpayer when you could buy it for free um, or you know, 20 bucks a pop. I mean, it's not a big deal, but, but that's considered a war on women. Um, if you don't treat women like men, that's a war on women in their mind. Today's show is going to be about the ultimate war on women, which is invading who they are. You know, we said the other day when we talked about the border, one of the dictionary definitions of, is, of invasion is when you, you impersonate someone as if you're that person, you're not. It's actually a term invasion. The personal invasion is for a man to say he's a woman. This is not just illogical and insane. It's extremely destructive in many areas of society. And Republicans, as you well know, on a federal and even state level, and even in red states, are not really pushing back. So I want to see if this case in Idaho, which should be the reddest of red states, where we have a court now saying that a man says, I want to be a woman, I want to be placed in a female prison, and I want my you-know-what chopped off and for taxpayers to do it, are the Idaho Republicans going to finally draw a line in the sand and stand up to this? With us today is a very special guest. Barbara Ehart is a state representative in the state of Idaho. She's in the state house, elected from Idaho Falls. She served for four years in the city council there. And then very importantly to our discussion today that I want to broaden up a little bit, um, she worked for 15 years as a basketball coach for women's division one basketball and certainly understands this war on women taking place at the hands of this just radical Soros funded movement, de-civilization agenda to just dehumanize what a woman is and all of its effects, certainly on sports, as we're going to talk about. So with no further ado, it's our pleasure to welcome for the first time to the Conservative Review, Barbara Ehart. Hey, Barbara, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Daniel. Hey, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for listening through my blabbering. I really want to turn over the show to you now. Could you give us just a state of play as to what you and your fellow Republicans in the legislature, the governor, are doing in light of the Ninth Circuit ruling that a man is a woman and you must pay to engage in the most grotesque 
procedures um, at the behest of someone who is mentally ill, not just mentally ill, but he was convicted of child molest. Right, right. Well, as soon as this case had come to light and we had heard that um, Judge Windmill was, uh, you know, had granted this okay initially, as Republican legislators, we were all banding and speaking and and wanted to let the governor know that we wanted and wanted, hopefully wanted to stand with him and saying, no, this was not right. And um, uh, our governor took a hard stance also. Uh, so we we feel at this point we're there to support him. I know we have other legislators. They had initially organized uh, the petition to let uh, to get legislators on board to know, let him know that he had support from the legislature. Uh, the I know another uh, legislature legislator has a resolution prepared. Others are. We have attorneys who are continuing to look into the law and hopefully will uh, our attorney general, Lawrence Watson, will hopefully stand strong and and push this hard as we proceed forward. But no, this is not something we want. It is a grotesque abuse of uh, powers and uh, misrepresentation, complete misrepresentation of the Eighth Amendment. Very sad. Very sad. No, sure. And, And certainly one of the things I feel for you guys in a state like Idaho is that you work so hard to try to maintain what we spoke about at the beginning of the show, just traditional values. We don't want anything from anyone. We're not trying to shove our way of life on anyone. We just don't want to be fundamentally transformed. And then lo and behold, you're placed under the auspices of the Ninth Circuit, and they do this stuff all the time. So the left, they either win where they can and where they can't, they get the courts to extend their long reach, which has been elongated. So, you know, is there any sense among your colleagues that at some point a state needs to stand up at some point, a federal judge, a federal judge could put a negative on a positive action of a state. They want to criminally convict a guy and they vacate the conviction. That's judicial power. But to place a positive on a negative, you must go out and engage in this mutilation operation. Is there some understanding that, hey, you know, that's a bridge too far? Well, I believe that there is. And I cannot tell you how excited. And I think that's the word that we are to stand with Governor Little. And we want him to stand strong. And I think he's going to stand strong. He knows that this is not an Idaho value. This is not something that we support. You know, the interesting things when it comes to courts Uh, It certainly happened in Idaho, and I know it happens in other states. What the other side will oftentimes do when it comes to issues like this and uh, as as a group, as legislators, as we decide whether or not to push something like this forward as a governor makes that decision, then the question always comes, hey, that's going to cost a lot of taxpayer dollars in order to fight and defend that. So then the Mm -hmm. push is, oh, hey, let's not do it. It's going to happen anyway. It's going to be it's going to cost taxpayer dollars. And I see it in states all over the place, except like Texas, where they have a fantastic um, attorney general who fights back. But they they cower and they use that threat and uh, that stigma of having used taxpayer dollars, supposedly being Republican, and that that's not how we are fiscally conservative. But I disagree. I believe that right now it's our social issues that are systematically changing who we are, what we are, and not just who we are and what we are, but what we've always been. This, you, you know, I'm a big Stephen Covey fan, uh, Seven Habits uh, for Highly uh, Successful People. 
One of the things Covey defines, and, and most people don't look at it this way, but he defines the difference between a principle and a value. And values, as he says, can be uh, a group of thieves can share a set of values because they, they come and go. They're, they're kind of uh, uh, fly by night. But principles are longstanding, tested through time, ideals that have proven to work. And so Idaho right now needs to stand strong on traditional principles that have proven to work through time. I know right now we have legislators who are willing to do it. And I really believe Governor Little is prepared to stand. And I hope Lawrence Wasden, our attorney general, is willing to stand also. That, that, that's good to hear, because, again, if it's not done in a state like Idaho, it will not be done anywhere else. I mean, that is just a reality. I'm just reading this from yesterday. It's unbelievable. WBZ4 in Boston, a convicted killer. This guy killed uh, killed his wife in 1990 um, in Massachusetts. He's sitting in Massachusetts prisons. And this guy um, calls himself Michelle Kosalik, and he's demanding and suing the you know prison commissioner to do the exact same thing for gender affirmation surgery. Wow, boy, is that or- Orwellian um, and wants to be transferred to a women's facility. Um, and they're taking them to the lower court. That's the First Circuit, which is pretty liberal, maybe not quite as liberal as the Ninth. But, you know, this stuff is really percolating. What concerns me is, you know, it's not just about taxpayer funding. There, there's something much bigger going on here. It's, it's the beginning, Genesis. It, it gets back to the foundation of the foundation. God created Adam. Then he didn't create Steve. He created Eve. He said, let us make woman. And the idea was that the beauty of a woman is that it's something she is something distinct from a man because if she's not then there is no woman and there is no nothing distinct about womanhood what what they are seeking to do is in multiple different levels eradicate that difference and it you know you you can have certain anarchist movements that prop up over time where they're kind of silly they're not that destructive. If I say, look, I'm a, I self-identify as a killer whale and I want to sit in water all day. Okay, whatever. But if you have a group of people that are very serious about that, there are logistical and then often dangerous problems that arise from that. And in this case, if you know, women are not men. Just yesterday, I saw a story we had at blaze.com, our sister website, where a rape and shelter uh, facility for battered women in Vancouver was defaced with trans power paraphernalia because they were upset that they weren't accepting men with a you-know-what between their legs to walk into that facility, which was primarily created as a safe space, which they like to talk about, from abuse at the hands of males. Yeah. What is going on here? And that that story, that kind of story uh, actually is popping up more and more. Uh, it's there, you know, this idea that you can force on us that which you want to do, however you want to feel this fluid 
gender, this fluid identity, um, it's screwy. It, it will be destructive and is destructive to society. And watching this also play out, I sit on the House Education Committee and starting to see this uh, pop up, well, not just pop up, it's prevalent in most of the states. And it's something that we're trying to fight here in Idaho. Uh, I, too, one of the comments, and I know you had known this, that had concerned me when we had uh, our Idaho inmate wanting his um, surgery, that then he would be transferred to the female facility. And that's not right. That's simply not right. I don't care if they're in prison or not. It, it is not right to place a man in the path of a woman. You, I don't, I don't even care how many drugs you take. You will always have the DNA of a man. And you will always have the advantages that men have. And, and it's simply not right. And uh, like you, I, I this is one area that uh, I refuse to to uh, just accept and move forward. So I want to get back to education because that's at the root of this. Um, but just you mentioned the advantage. So, look, I, I'd be remiss to have you on the show and not talk about this. You coached Division One women's basketball for 15 years. Um, this is from two days ago. Uh, let's run.com. Okay. They call this dude June Eastwood. Okay. Steps onto the start line of the clash of the inland Northwest. It was right next to you. Um, cross country meet on Saturday morning in Cheney, Washington. She will make history. Eastwood, a senior at the university of Montana will become the fastest distance runner. And, and they say this very blissfully, like, you know, with a serious face, become the fastest distance runner to ever compete in the NCAA division one women's race. In fact, it won't even be close. Eastwood's personal best in the 800 meters is 155.23. That's almost four seconds faster than the collegiate record of 159.10. And then they go on to say his personal best in the 1500 is 359.19. Jenny Simpson's collegiate record unchallenged for a decade is almost 10 seconds slower. And, um, you know, they're kind of like, that's kind of cool. What do you have to say about that? Yes, I, I, I did. I spent 15 years coaching Division I basketball. I also played Division I basketball at Idaho State. I was at UC Santa Barbara, BYU, Washington State, and then as a head coach uh, at Cal State Fullerton. And I'm, I'm telling you what, uh, this will be the end of women's sports. It is absolutely 100% not fair for boys and men to take the places of girls and women in sports. Right now, I know that the other side is trying to redefine what Title IX meant, but Title IX had some real meaning. And as you like to say, words have meaning. Many women who went before me, and many of them are gay women, fought hard to be able to give girls and women's women opportunities in sports. People like me continued the fight. Much discrimination was uh, faced along the way, and I won't get into that whole conversation, but we we put a lot out there in order to continue to create opportunities, which uh, when you're talking federal dollars, when federal dollars are being spent on, on boys and men, then those same federal dollars should be spent on girls and women. And we should, if we start spending and using those federal dollars for boys who want to pretend to be women, then we will lose the whole point of Title IX. Title IX was about opportunities for girls and women in sports, period. We all know that. But to try to uh, re- do some revisionist history, it, it's sad. 
because the revision, the revisionist history is taking place, not just right here in sports and trying to make gender fluid. It's happening with the very foundation of our country. And, and we do have to openly and vocally push back. And hopefully what I, I mean, I believe more people feel as you feel that this isn't right. But I think people are scared. You see what happens uh, sometimes when you take a stand. Martina Navratilova, who I have admired for years, even got to meet. She was giving Colorado their pregame pep talk before they played, as it worked, unfortunately. But I was able to meet Martina. Martina has been a phenomenal tennis player and an active advocate for the LGBT. She came out, I think it was around March, and spoke against this transgenderism and said that it wasn't fair, it'd be cheating. Oh my goodness, they all came down on Martina. She adjusted her statement a little to remove the word cheating, but she still holds to, at least unless she's changed something lately, that it isn't right and it's not right and we need more women. I think you're going to see more women speak up uh, who are actually on that side um, and, and say this isn't right. It'll be the downfall of women's sports. And, and and again, so you have sports and you could appreciate, you know, there's locker rooms, there's showers, there's there's close spaces that are very sensitive. And the notion that you could just say, oh, you know, government has no role to play in defining anything. I, I could define what I want. Well, I mean, what I find amazing is that we now live in a time where supposedly there's this awakening. They call it a Me Too movement, um, where uh, you know there was a lot of sexual assault kept under wraps, and you know basic criminology. Everyone knows that you know most of them are not reported, and very few rape cases are cleared. It's only about you know 25% clearance rate according to the FBI. You know there's a big problem with that. So to invite men to go into female bathrooms i just i just don't, and and they're having this problem they're pushing it in the military too um so my concern is i am not seeing even in red states where they're pushing back against this in fact i'm seeing the left mobilized even in red states to push this decivilization agenda could you talk more broadly what you and some others are trying to do in Idaho to at least create some sort of safe space, true safe space um, for women? Well, um, I've been exploring uh, some things, particularly in the world of sports. Uh, you know, I want I don't know how well pictures will show, but, you know, here's one. This is Gabrielle Ludwig. This is just an example of a woman who did, I mean, a man who decided to be a woman and play on uh, a women's basketball collegiate team. And the size differentiation is enormous, not just in height, but in width. Um, so again, I don't think, I think the average person knows that it really will take away from girls and women's in sports. I know of the Montana case. I also have heard the, the, there's huge whisperings and pushback, but people are afraid to say anything because of, uh, you know, the the immobilization of the left. And yet, I I plan to, uh, I plan to bring legislation to address this. Uh, the other thing that where we really have to be cognizant of this push, and that is in our schools. As I said, uh, this past year, I had worked on bringing some opt-in. Uh, a, a sex education opt-in that did not just deal with sex education, but it was based on 
all sexuality that's being taught and pushed in the schools. And when you look at what's coming with the comprehensive sex education, that's already lingering in most other states, California, of course, being the extreme exception as, as to where California right now has sex education in almost every course at every turn. And the revisionist history is unbelievable. But what I was trying to do is make it about consent, not content, that parents should have to opt in. Right now we have an opt out and most states have an opt out, but our surrounding neighbors, Utah, Arizona, Nevada, they're all doing opt in. And Utah has a phenomenal program on opting in. But what it does, Daniel, is it basically places a responsibility on the adult. Because right now you think about it with an opt out, it's silly. That means the teacher gives this opt out form to the child and the child has is responsible to take it home to the parent, yeah. actually give it to the parent and then bring it back. And that's even assuming that they decided they want to tell the parent in case the parent wanted to opt them out and they were a little embarrassed. That places all of the responsibility on the child. The responsibility needs to be on the parents and the opt in places all the responsibility on the parent between the teacher, the educator and the parent and the conversation that goes there. And right now we're with social media and all forms of communication, parents can be communicated with in many vastly uh, differing ways. And they do it right now anyway, They're, whether it's a field trip, or good heavenly days, heaven forbid that you forget to pay your lunch money, you are being contacted 14 times a day until you get it paid. So to, to say that this is not possible, it's extremely possible. And we need to let parents know that which is occurring and put this decision-making process in the hands of the parents. And so it's something that I'm working on. Uh, it, it ran through the house quickly, uh, cleanly by party vote. And it um, was um, held up in the Senate education as we got closer to the end of the session. They weren't uh, sure if we could get it through. So I'll be working with the senators to bring that again. Wait, you weren't sure if you can get it through. I'm, I'm trying to look up here. C could you help me out on the orientation of the Senate? Well, uh, I think, oh, gosh, I I should know this. I, like 25 to six Republicans. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I think it's um, 28 or 29 to six or seven. We have 35 senators. OK, so. I'm just trying to get this straight here. So. Sex education. Um, you're saying the status quo is that in a state like Idaho, you need to push something to opt to for an opt in to change the mandatory's uh, sex ed. And it's being held up in the Senate, which. See, I'm at a loss of words because here in, in the Washington area on the national scene, we're always hearing, well, Republicans, we can't do anything because we don't have 60 votes in the Senate, you know, 60 percent margin. So this is Idaho. Um. And we're told you can't be a fiscal conservative anywhere. So I got that message straight. All 50 states, Medicaid expansion, Idaho adopted that. I, I, I got that message. You're not allowed to be a fiscal conservative anymore. But I would think like, you know, you said the social values. What is going on there? And could you describe what sort of what do you mean by sex ed is taking place in Idaho that you want to um, reform? Uh, to me, sex ed uh, encompasses or it's sex ed and sexuality. I use the word sexuality and I did that uh, for a particular reason. Sex ed in itself, uh, we Idaho had 
been using through the uh, health and welfare a program that was only rolled out to about 18 high schools. Nonetheless, it could have been rolled out to more called reducing the risk. It was an it was called an abstinence based program. Well, let me just let you know that what's so interesting about this is the abstinence based program, as with so many things, they redefined that which abstinence meant. And that was one of the first things that was so disturbing. Abstinence, uh, this abstinence-based program meant that what you were to do is to, when you engaged in sexual activity, you were supposed to engage in consistent and safe sexual activity. So it was very misleading to a parent. If a parent heard, oh gosh, yes, we're, we're going to be using it abstinence-based program, what do you think you're going to do? It's going to literally be apps and abstinence program. And so that was one of the first uh, disconcerting things that we had found and we, uh, we're trying to point out and change. And I do believe we are getting it changed, Daniel, uh, now, though I have to, I'm still following up as to that, which it's going to, what we're replacing things with, although I believe we can do things the Idaho way. Let me tell you something else in this particular program. Yes. Oh, I was going to say, um, with this program, now, again, not everybody had to do this, but what once it was approved and it was in the system, here are some of the things that this program, abstinence-based, reducing the risk, purported uh, to teach. This is from the teacher's manual. It normalizes sexual activity among teens. And how does it do this? This places children, and I say children because high school are still children, it put them in role-playing situations. And in these role-playing situations, uh, they would they would have him doing something such as this. And it didn't matter if it was um, uh, same sex, you know, uh, opposite. It, they, they role played it all. And it says something such as you and your boyfriend or girlfriend have been going out for a while. From the beginning, you touched and kissed a lot. And then you begin to touch and kiss more and you be and, and you begin to get excited and, and they start to go over these scenarios. It, it, it normalized anal and oral sex as it explained uh -huh. how this work it um certainly explains explicit details of using the this is in idaho this is in this is in this is a national program that we adopted at 18 schools um who, who, I, who, who decided that it, that actually bypassed the uh, education committees and it came through it came it, to me i call it you know a, a um end around through the health and welfare department they took it directly to the schools through but who runs that i mean don't republicans haven't Republicans run that? I mean, yeah. Let me just let me just say this: we're we're also looking at how how big this uh, program is, and it needs to be changed. There's there's it's so much money, so many things there that it's not over. The oversight is not what it should be. Although much, I, I have to give Governor Little credit. He's hired a new director as Governor Little came in. He's been in there just over six months. I think he's doing a phenomenal job. Uh, he's committed to cleaning these things up. I just wanted people to understand that these programs are terrible. I ha Daniel, I have to say one more thing that this program does. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it also undermines and deceives parents. Part of the curriculum. Now, we don't have uh, Planned Parenthood, you know, uh, entrenched here in Idaho. But again, this is for and this is a national curriculum. Part of the curriculum Take, has the kids go get in groups or, you know, in couples. And first they have to go find a condom at a store and purchase it and, or at least know where it is. Then, then it takes them, uh, they have to go to a birth control clinic 
Now so many of these birth control clinics are Planned Parenthood, and they're supposed to go there to see what it's like, to see uh, how they handle HIV and STDs. But now think about this. they When they're at that, this, this book specifically says in almost every state, teens could be tested for HIV without parent permission. However, to be sure, teens should check with the test site beforehand to find out what policies are followed. They can ask if they need parental control for testing and treatment, and whether the clinic will share information with teachers. Now think one more thing, Daniel. Imagine six months later, four months later, you, you get pregnant and you're scared and you're afraid to have your parents find out. Where do you think you're going to go? This is a self-perpetuating program that feeds the kids right back to these very clinics they've been sent to find out what's there. So I'm a little bit naive here. I live in a different world. I went to religious private school. So I don't know much about this, but could you just take this back to the basics? I'm not, I'm not understanding the premise of this. So at, at 11 o'clock, they have math and then one o'clock, they have physics. So what ensconced once a week, twice a week in between is here's how you have sex. I, I, oh, well, uh, typically what happens with these programs? Yeah, yeah there's definitely more to it. Probably uh, hard to quite see this program in Idaho came through, uh, usually came through the health uh, curriculum. And and this was not necessarily taught. And I, I don't think it was taught at all, which is another concern to me by the teachers. And so we literally had parents go in knowing how Common Core works. They looked at the curriculum that was presented for the health class and said, all right, this is okay. I'm okay with my child learning this. Then, and, and I spoke directly with a couple of parents where this occurred. Then a couple weeks later, their child's coming home and talking about this curriculum that they're having and they're feeling very uncomfortable as they continue to question the child. It turns out that they have a guest instructor coming in from the local district health department, and it's the guest instructor who is actually teaching this, bringing the information in. And as they bring that information in, it turns out, as we found out, they wouldn't let them take the manuals home, uh, the student manual. And so, hey, you know, they bring them, pass them out, gather them up, role play. And that was occurring for this particular um program once a week and it was a guest instructor coming in but that is not all i'm worried about but that is what the reducing the risk did what i'm not understanding and i'm glad we're talking about this because because i'm just speaking to myself here i don't think i focused enough on education over the years we've, we've really touched on a lot of issues but you know as you mentioned that's the foundation the quote from congressman theodore sedgwick in 1790 you know again it's he talked about the education system that's really where you confuse the minds of young people at a time when they're more confused than ever and the world is so upside down. And, you know, they're teaching them a man's a woman, a woman's a man, the, the morality is like this, this is not uh, immoral, this is immoral. Um, what I'm not understanding is this. In a state like California, you wouldn't by accident, let's say in San Francisco at some point, parents come home and there was an instructor in the public schools bringing in someone from a Second Amendment Patriot militia group um, demonstrating some of their uh, um, survivalist tactics and, and some of their ideology. That, that, that would never happen. Indeed, it doesn't happen in any state. Um, how does this get off the ground? Because I live in central Maryland where I consider pretty secular and I look towards a place where you live and I'm like, wow, I wish I lived there. Um, that looks like a nice place to live. How does this get off the ground and why 
Has there not been a robust pushback until now? Well, as I'm finding out, Daniel, now keep in mind, I've only finished <clears throat> my second session here. Uh, but uh -huh. as I'm finding out, there, it, it, I don't know if you realize, Idaho right now is going through an administrative rules process that is very unique, <clears throat> excuse me, to the nation. Uh, we as legislators have an opportunity to go over administrative rules. Well, during the session, it's a whole nother story there. There had been some pushback because we'd like the rules, administrative rules to be treated like bills where both parties, both the House and the Senate have to agree just like a bill. But anyway, the administrative rules, same at the federal level, are treated as law and agencies can create rules. Now, the, the way this is supposed to work, legislators create law and the administrative rules are supposed to help that law take place. But what's happened are these agencies, and there are many, and they're at all states and at the federal level. Uh, EPA is a great example. They just create their own rules and there's no oversight. Um, there it's, it's like that with, with many, and I shouldn't say there's no oversight, but you, you understand that, which I'm saying. So in Idaho, when we have these agencies that are enormous and you come into session, the first thing we do when we get to session is we try to review the administrative rules, but I'm telling you, Daniel, there are tons, there are thousands and they'll create them this past year. You know what they did? They created uh, a rule in health and welfare that they basically changed on uh, the birth certificate where you can change your gender. And this did not come through lawmakers. And so now going back, we are fighting this. But this, there was no reason, nothing had been passed as a, in a bill, as a law, to give them the authority to do this. They just did it. And so I, I, when you say, how does this happen? The educate on the education committee with me. Not only do we have administrative rules, but there's another part that's called incorporated by reference. And I, I, I sit and ask, how would parents even know where to look, where to go to find this? I can barely find this. And after you have all your rules, there's this little click on button on an incorporated by reference. You click on this button. And now there's thousands of more pages that incorporate what the federal government does. And we're pushing back, Daniel, but this is not easy. So basically, where is traditional Americans that don't want social transformation, they will go where? To their legislators in the ballot box. The other side says, hey, I'm going to go to the courts and I'm going to go to the bureaucracies. And, and I see it on a federal level, too. We always think in terms of the legislature and they're always plotting and scheming. They know this undersecretary and this guy who works in his office in this agency. And that's how they promulgate their things. Hence the term that I, I borrowed from Justice Scalia, social transformation without representation. We fought a revolution over taxation without representation, which is, you know, by a factor of of a million, um, not nearly as severe as as this. You know, a tax is a tax. You could countermand that. It's kind of a one off. This is so systemically embedded in our society. And, um, you know, my concern is that I feel there's a need to at least set a standard of what conservative governance looks like. And tell me, Barbara, if we can't do it in Idaho, I'm just looking around. I mean, if you understand political science at all, demographics, different reasons why people vote a certain way, your biggest metro area is Boise. You compare that to almost any other state, that, that, that's going to naturally be your most favorable climate. So, I mean, you got your work cut out for you, but we're, we're certainly counting on you 
to to push back against this and to at least stand for for women being women and and not you know having their spaces being infringed upon their sports being infringed upon by men um you know keep definitely keep us updated on this uh this and many other issues going around um could you just just close a little bit with just the remaining minute or two we have with just what have you learned you're very much you know what people don't see on cable news uh you know the big what we call here the Sella Carter I-95 Carter East Coast New York Washington media um big big state politicians you're a citizen legislator ran a small what we would certainly regard here as a small town Idaho Falls City Council now you're just completed your first term um in the state legislature in the state house what have you learned about politics the most that both concerns you and where maybe you see an opportunity this is let me just share then a couple quick thoughts if i may uh along this line first I believe in our constitution and it is a document and a foundation worth fighting for. I believe that with all my heart and I am surrounded by fellow legislators who believe the same. I have found that if citizens will engage, there is power. That's really the, there's power in numbers and our citizens have to understand that. Yes, we're going to run into roadblocks, but if they're not engaged, these agendas are going to keep going forward. Uh, citizens can make a difference through their numbers. The other thing, and I know I had shared this with you before, this is what we're up against, Daniel. We are just your down-home uh, American patriots uh, do going to work, getting up and working every day, picking our kids up after school, uh, working, doing the homework, taking them to their, their sports activities afterwards, coming together as a family, eating dinner, and then maybe having an hour or so to try to work on issues like this is why we need more. Yeah. The other side, Daniel, is engaged almost 24-7. They have so many people and they're paid federal monies to come up and craft policies all the way from the Human Rights Commission, the Human Task Force, Planned Parenthood, and you could name so many of the organizations. They get paid big money. They're working on these things all the time, full time. And so we're in a reactionary state, always in a reactionary state because our actionary state is to support the constitution. And so we, if I could say anything to your audience, it is, which I, I know they already know things are changing, but I still believe in my heart, we as citizens banding together, making our voices heard, coming to the legislators, the legislative sessions. And I think you have to do it, work through the state as much as anything, the power, the, the, the way to do it, in my opinion, is your state legislatures. But I still have faith, Daniel. I have to. Otherwise, what's the point? I believe we can still make a difference. And, you know, and, and it's great to hear that. Certainly, where could our listeners follow you? Is there, do you have any website, Twitter account? You know, um, I right now, probably the best place would be on my Facebook at uh, Representative Barbara Ehart. And, uh, you know, I, I'll post other things uh, later as we get that back up and going. OK, so we'll 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 put that up here on the screen. Uh, Barbara's uh, Facebook. Thank you, Barbara for joining us and we look forward to having you back again to discuss an array of issues state powers you know civil society we got to start in a place like idaho look you know if idaho falls then uh we want the falls the, the water not falling right. our civilization because then then there's nothing left there you have it folks that was barbara ehard representative from the state legislature in idaho discussing everything 
from empowerment of women, true empowerment of women, and actually defining women as women, standing up for their sports, their their safety and security from this radical gender-bending agenda. Um, let me tell you, friends. Never forget this. As it stands now, there is no such thing as a red state. I know we started this out because of the whole transgender, gender bending, castration surgery, Ninth Circuit. But I hope you, you know, saw from someone that you're not likely to see elsewhere. But I think, you know, a lot of you in your communities know people like Barbara that are just like you and me. Um, just go to the next level, more of the lower local political offices. But it's so hard to get people like that in, in larger offices. But then then there's the other issue, which is even if you're in a bigger office, United States Senate, at the end of the day, it's the courts and it's the bureaucracies that are controlling everything. The left got very smart about that. That is the opposite of republicanism, where Madison defined that as the power always flowing in some form, either directly or indirectly, from the people. And this is our, the challenge of our time. It's true of illegal immigration. It's true of refugee resettlement. It's true of, you know, the values, the education, um, the sexual licentious alphabet soup agenda. All of this is being pushed uh, without our consent. It's governance without the consent of the people. That's what the Declaration of Independence is all, all about. Governance by the consent of the governed. And what we have is we don't have consent. I mean, if you had in a state like Iowa, Okay, we're going to take a vote. Should we put men with women? Should we pay for them to cut their balls off? Should we have in the public schools, um, you know, sexual this and gay that, uh, you know, taking away time for math and science and whatever else? You would have a whole vote leading up to that. Public hearings, transparency, it wouldn't pass. Frankly, most of this stuff wouldn't pass in in blue leaning at least leaning blue states and certainly swing states but certainly in a state like idaho but this is how we gradually allow the left to normalize this behavior not just in swing states but even in a state like idaho and we're left without a red state without anything so i'm glad we got into that broader discussion but yeah i mean don't let anyone intimidate you the lesson here is that you have a fringe radical 2% most extreme people in this country that are the most activated. But there's a silent majority that opposes this. And I think the mixture of localism and education, we really need to focus more on education policy at a local level. Um, and I think that is the way forward. I look forward to working with all of you. Send me your ideas at dharowitz at blazemedia.com, what you want to hear. Um, but wanted a little bit of a change of pace today. Again, the type of uh, guests that you're really not going to see on some of these other shows, but we like this long-form discussion where we actually discuss what is so important to the foundation of our civil society, of our government, that is missed by pr you know, pretty much everyone else in this industry, while the left just, uh, again, wins 50-year cultural battles without firing a shot. It's time for a Waterloo in this battle. And I'm looking for where that moment's going to be. But there is nothing more radical than uprooting just the existence of women.
And I think, again, just like what I believe is the best jujitsu against the left on gun control is to talk about criminal control and show how they're the ones letting go criminals, including gun felons, while stripping us of our ability to defend ourselves against the people they let out. It's a similar thing here. The very people that are saying, oh, they're for women, women's empowerment, they're the ones endangering women, certainly directly security-wise, but really even in a worse systemic way to just impersonate and steal from them the very definition of womanhood. If you want um, me to pass on any notes, comments, uh, feedback to Representative Barbara Ehart, let me know and I'll pass it on to her as, as we always do with all of our guests. Tomorrow, we're going to have a special guest if nothing changes, Jason Jones, our big cartel border expert like nobody else. Another guest you're not going to hear elsewhere. So again, Conservative Review's YouTube page is going to be your bookmarked uh, website. you got to subscribe to our shows, like our videos, drop, a, drop us a comment, uh, tweet at me at Arm Conservative. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thanks for listening.